Amen. Let us turn then to the reading of God's Word, Ruth chapter 1. Then, uh, Lord willing, we, we will work up to the end of the book of Ruth on Christmas morning. And uh, just a note on the outline, if you're looking at the four points in the outline, uh, we will we will just briefly look at verses 19 to 22. Uh, we may uh, we may come back to that a little bit and to uh, the wavering testimony of Naomi, but the encouragement of the women of Bethlehem. We may come back to that at the very when we're at the very end of the book, and the women are encouraging Naomi in the last verses of Ruth the women of the town of Bethlehem. And so we'll ju- we'll, we will look just a little bit at verses 19 to 22 this morning, uh, but we'll read uh, the chapter uh, in its entirety. Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, page 282 in most of the Bibles, under the seats, Joshua judges Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, let us hear the word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So far, the reading. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is holy. and God calls us to be holy. God is merciful. And God calls us to be merciful. In the book of Ruth, we see mercy and patience we see mercy and patience with stumbling and sorrowing people. We see especially the providential mercy of God. We also see throughout the book examples of God's people showing mercy. This book is written, as we see in the first words, in the days when judges ruled. And as we know from the book of Judges, this was a time of much unfaithfulness in the land of Israel. This was a time of many wayward tribes and many wayward generations. But the little town of Bethlehem stands out as a light of faithful living in an unfaithful time. As one commentator summarized it, quote, In contrast to the book of Judges, where the nation of Israel as a whole and most of the characters are portrayed as thoroughly canonized in heart and mind and deed, This story describes Bethlehem as an oasis in an ethical wasteland. End of quote. The family of Elimelech decides to turn away from this little town. This oasis of faithfulness at an unfaithful time. They turn away from this little town. Then after 10 years and many sad events, the road again becomes a place of decision for those still living in the family of Elimelech. So our theme, brothers and sisters, as we consider the road between Bethlehem and Moab this morning is this, that Yahweh works mercifully through the stumbles and sorrows of his people. First Israelites turn to Moab, and then a Moabite returns to Moab, and then a Moabite turns to Israel, and then briefly we'll we'll look at 
uh, Naomi, Ruth with her, coming into Israel. Uh, but we'll, we'll mostly have our first three points here this morning. Well, after the first words in the days when judges ruled, we should not be surprised by the next words. There was a famine in the land. Even as Bethlehem stands as a light of faithfulness during the dark time of judges, the nation as a whole is stumbling. To take the words from the very end of the book of Judges, this was a time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And God had decreed long ago that unfaithful generations in the promised land would face famine, as is recorded in texts like Leviticus chapter 26, verses 18 to 20. But instead of seeing the spiritual hand of God upon the promised land, and instead of seeking covenant renewal, instead of repenting, the family of Elimelech decides to try to take matters into their own hands, to build their own kingdom, to find their own solution. And they head to the land of Moab. It is always dangerous to make our own solutions and our own rules. Now, because, because of the mercy of God, Often, we may not have immediate consequences when we make up our own rules and our own solutions. Indeed, living in this sin-cursed world, we know that difficult things can come not as a result of sin, John chapter 9, this man is not blind because of some particular sin. And we know that the wicked can sometimes prosper, Psalm 37. But let us not think that just because judgment is sometimes delayed and there's not always immediate consequences and it's and we, we can't always see, you know, as why is the faithful suffering, why is the wicked prospering, let us not think that this is a reason that we can come up with our own solutions. And let us know that unrepentant sin does have consequences in the next world and often here also. At this time, for this family, God did bring immediate consequences. Elimelech dies. Soon after their arrival is the implication of the text. They arrive in Moab. Elimelech dies. What is Naomi now to do? She has two unmarried sons. She is now the head of the family. Was this, was this idea to build their own kingdom and head off in the land of Moab, was that, was that wavering leadership of her husband Elimelech? Will she now bring the family back? No, she will not. They remain in the land for 10 years. Her husbands or her sons Mary, Moabite woman, as they are living in that land for 10 years. And so now maybe for 10 years, Naomi's thinking that this decision at least kind of worked. The loss of her husband at the beginning was difficult, but they have bread. Sometimes marriage itself is, is elevated to be the end game no matter how it happens. And so, yeah, they married Moabites, but her sons both married. 
There's no children. But in a way, for 10 years, Naomi might be thinking, well, this decision kind of worked. But then her sons die also. And the sufferings of Naomi are multiplied. Now, as we shall see, there may have been stumbling faith in the family of Elimelech through these years. Reading on, the testimony of Naomi can be called immature, stumbling. But she continues to speak and pray in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. And so the family of Elimelech has made poor decisions, but for Elimelech, for Malon and Kilion, we might say that the spiritual verdict is, it's not pronounced by the narrator. In some ways, the spiritual verdict is ambiguous. From the human perspective, the spiritual verdict is ambiguous. We, we cannot tell unless the Holy Spirit-inspired narrator tells us directly. And in this case, we are not told exactly what the spiritual verdict of Elimelech, of Malon, and Kilion is. We can see a poor spiritual decision. We cannot tell if there was yet immature faith or if there was no faith at all. This is the human perspective. We we simply do not know what is on the inside. And, and fruit often gives us a visible illustration of this. Uh, we, we really enjoy clementines. Uh, at least a few of us in the, the Fresic home, we enjoy clementines. You know, you, you open up those little orange fruits, and sometimes it looks terrible on the outside. And it tastes really good on the inside. And sometimes it is a really bright, beautiful looking clementine and you open it up and it is a shriveled inedible nothing inside from the human perspective the spiritual verdict is ambiguous we can see poor decisions but we don't know the final word with God the spiritual verdict is never ambiguous God knows God sees. God knows when there is stumbling, immature faith which is yet trusting in Him. God knows when there is visible, outward looking faith, but no true trust, but instead hypocrisy on the inside. Surely we are all stumbling people. As the psalmist says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. And so, let us ask ourselves, what is your testimony? Is it dangerously ambiguous? Whatever your testimony is before man, God knows your heart. What is your heart and your prayer? Is it the prayer of unbelief? The prayer of imperfect, stumbling faith? Which is it? 
Only our Savior, Jesus Christ, is perfect. He is the only perfect shepherd. Pray that we would not have ambiguous testimonies before man. And I pray we would know nothing is ambiguous with God. Brothers and sisters, let's come to our second point. A Moabite returns to Moab. The men of the family are dead. Naomi and her daughter-in-laws are in a very dangerous and difficult situation. Singleness, widowhood, younger, older. Uh, that is a difficult situation to this day. Uh, culturally, uh, economically, it, it had even more difficulties and more layers of difficulty for those who lived a little bit before 1000 BC. There's a relationship uh, between these three women. It's not only a relationship built. You know, we see both of the daughter-in-laws weeping uh, with Naomi on the road between Bethlehem and Moab. Uh, it's not only that kind of relationship, but also socially they have a relationship. In the ancient world, you were especially considered tied to your husband's family, even if your husband passed away. Uh, and so uh, they, are, they are tied together in a number of ways, and they begin this trip to Bethlehem. Sadly, the text does not indicate that this was a spiritual decision so much for Naomi. No, she goes after hearing, verse 6, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, as they are going, Naomi then encourages her daughters-in-law to return to Moab. We do see in verses 8 and 9 that Naomi does this with a prayer in the name of the one true God, Lord in all caps, Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. She is encouraging the daughters to return to Moab. But she is doing it with a prayer in the name of the Lord. But then, after they both say they will remain with her, she continues, and now she's no longer using the name of the Lord. She's using almost sarcastic arguments. She reminds them in verses 11 to 13 about practical laws, including uh, the law of Leverite, Leverite brother-in-law marriage in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. It was this way of of a widow was such a desperate situation. There was a way of providing for widows through having them marry their brother-in-law. Well, Naomi's like, look, this isn't going to work. There, there are no sons. And even if I had sons, would you wait around? She paints the picture as totally helpless. Or she doesn't say anything about the fact that there's other kinsmen redeemer routes, as we'll see as we work through the book of Ruth. She paints the picture as hopeless. She's almost sarcastic you cannot come with me and then Orpah leaves and look at verse 15 she went back to her own people and to her gods Verse 15, when, when Naomi was praying for her daughter-in-laws in verses 8 and 9, she did pray she wanted them to worship the one true God. That is the language of her prayer in verses 8 and 9. 
How do we put that together with verse 15? Most likely, we could put it together by saying, Orpah has made no profession of faith. She has not expressed a trust in the one true God of Israel. And so while the prayer in verses 8 and 9 is in the language of the one true God, once Orpah leaves, the language is, she has given no profession. The only thing that we can see is that she's returning to her gods. Now, brothers and sisters, I will say at this point, uh, there's uh, reformed commentators have very different perspectives on, on Naomi and her words throughout this chapter. And so some, including Matthew Henry, have a, have a quite positive view of her arguments here. They say Naomi is, is making her daughter-in-laws count the cost of discipleship. Certainly we can say Naomi is not being too seeker-sensitive in this text. And that is possible. It's possible to paint the Christian life as just you know, wishy-washy Christianity. And Naomi is not doing that. But brothers and sisters, uh, I agree with some other Reformed commentators who would say Naomi has gone too far. She is telling her daughter, daughters-in-law, that they really need to go back. And just to jump ahead to verse 18 for a moment, see that when one daughter-in-law expresses a great profession of faith, and we're coming to that soon, Naomi, she doesn't say, praise the Lord, I'm, I am rejoicing to have you come with me thou, now that you've counted the cost and you've considered how difficult it will be to go to the land of Israel. No, she just says nothing. It is true that we should not be wishy-washy in discipleship, but let us not go too far. Let us never reach a point where we would actually discourage someone from the faith. And Naomi is reaching that point. So the Reformed commentator Ian Duguid, brothers and sisters, I'm going to read this quote at some length. Quote, those who are consciously living a life of disobedience to God, Naomi has lived in the land of Moab for 10 years, those who are consciously living a life of disobedience to God are not typically eager to defend and explain their faith to others. Yet isn't it striking and encouraging to us all that even though at that moment Naomi wasn't looking out for Ruth's spiritual interests, nonetheless, God was still able to use Naomi in spite of her attitude as a means to draw Ruth to himself. God's mission to rescue sinners is not limited by our flaws, failings, and foibles. God will call to himself those whom he chooses, sometimes through the most bizarre messengers and unlikely combinations of circumstances. It is his work from the beginning to the end. End of quote. What, brothers and sisters, is your testimony? As man plants and waters and God gives the increase, what, what stumbling messengers has God used to bring you to his 
perfect salvation. And has God used you in the planting and the watering for others to be drawn to himself? How has God used your stumblings, your imperfect efforts to point others to his perfect salvation? God works in a mysterious way. God works mercifully through the stumblings and sorrows of people on this sin-cursed earth. And so finally we're brought to Jesus Christ, the only perfect Savior. And surely every page of Scripture takes us to Christ. Surely as we work through Ruth, we know that Bethlehem is not just a faithful light in an unfaithful generation. It's the birthplace of the Savior. So, brothers and sisters, let's come then to the testimony of a Moabite. A Moabite turns to Israel from the stumbling, immature discipleship testimony of Naomi. We come to perhaps the most beautifully expressed profession of faith in the Old Testament. Ruth's profession of faith is firm. It is mature. It is standing on the promises of the Lord. This is a beautiful profession. There's at least three things about this profession by Ruth that stand out in a beautiful way. First, this profession is beautiful because it uses covenant language. This is perhaps the most promising thing that we can say about the family of Elimelech in this chapter. That there has been at least enough discipleship, perhaps by uh, Malon, Ruth 4 verse 9 specifies that's the son who Ruth was married to. Perhaps by Malon and or by Naomi over the years, there has been at least enough discipleship for Ruth to know the promises of God and in professing her faith to echo back the promises of God in covenant language. You can, you can keep your eyes on on Ruth's profession in verses 16 and 17 as I read the language of God's promises to his people in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 to 13, where God says to his people, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God. There has been at least enough discipleship that this Moabite can make a profession in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the one true God, and can make that profession echoing back God's promises to him. Praise the Lord for his word to us, for his promises to us. And may we May we rejoice in those promises and by faith speak them back, profess them back, pray them back to the God of our salvation. A second thing that's beautiful about this profession of faith by Ruth is that it is costly. Naomi has gone too far in asking her daughter-in-laws to count the cost of discipleship. Ruth has certainly done this. 
She knows what is going on. She knows that she's leaving behind her family, her land, everything that's familiar to her. She knows that she's doing this at a time when there's no car, train, airplane, FaceTime, email. She is leaving Moab behind. She is going to the promised land. The land of Israel. The land of the Lord. And she is fully aware of what she is doing. She is fully aware that this may make her earthly prospects much more difficult. Especially if uh, she's been listening to Naomi's attitude. Like, you're a Moabite. Nobody's going to marry you in Israel. She knows that this is not a decision for which she can expect earthly joy. She knows this is a costly profession. She will be buried in the land of Judah. Third, this profession is beautiful in part because of what is not said. Ruth does not wallow in her sorrow. Now, I want to be clear. Believers can speak about the sorrows that we face. Certainly, Job is a hero of the faith. Without so much of the wavering immaturity that Naomi displays in this chapter, and he calls his own experiences bitter in Job 27, verse 2. And so the application here is not pretend that you have never had any sorrow and never talk about your sorrow. Please do not misunderstand me. Take, Take what we're saying too far. But there is something beautiful in the fact that Ruth's sorrows have completely taken a back seat. Do you ever read Ruth chapter 1 this morning or previously and think about the sorrows of Naomi? It's because it's hard not to think about the sorrows of Naomi. She has suffered much and she wants to make sure everybody remembers that she suffered much, even to the point where, right, she says, don't call me Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasantness. Call me Mara. Call me bitterness. The townspeople aren't going to go along with that. We don't necessarily think very much about the sufferings and sorrows of Ruth because it is not part of her profession. She does not highlight it. But people of God, Ruth has suffered many sorrows as well. She is also a widow. She has lost her husband, and this at a younger age, again, without any earthly expectation of ever being remarried. She has not lost two sons. The implication of the text is that she has been married for 10 years without children. She has suffered the sorrow of infertility. But she does not say, Why would I go to Israel, a land where I have no hope of earthly blessing, to serve a God who has closed my womb, made me a widow? No, no, no. Ruth has suffered, but her sorrows take a back seat as her profession looks to the one true God. 
I will be buried in his land. And may the Lord curse me if I do not follow through on my profession. And indeed, the Lord does justly curse and condemn all those who do not come to him and follow him and love him. As we think about sorrows, because Ruth does have her own sorrows, and Naomi does have sorrows, God is merciful. God knows our sorrows. God can work through our sorrows, even using them to bring us to himself. God understands what is one of the very titles of our Savior Jesus Christ, prophetically spoken, Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is the man of sorrows. Well, brothers and sisters, let's look just briefly at the return uh, into, into Israel. Uh, one thing in verse 19, which uh, would have which uh, would have been noticed, even though it's implied by the first hearers, even just the fact that they arrive is one of the many evidences of providence all throughout the book. As one commentator put it, quote, nothing is told of events along the road back to Bethlehem, but considering that thieves frequently lurked along the roads, it must have been a dangerous trip for two unaccompanied women. Observe the providential care of God that is implied so frequently throughout the book of Ruth, end of quote. And so they, they come into Bethlehem. They arrive safely. Lord willing, we'll come back and look a little bit more at the words of Naomi and, and then how the town will encourage Naomi when we get to the very end of the book. But for now, let's just look at the one word, stirred. The whole town was stirred because of them. Brothers and sisters, we're going to talk about this, Lord willing, as we work through the book of Ruth. But let's just anticipate where we're going and let's know that this was a stirring of mercy. It's a stirring of mercy. Every indication we, as we work through Ruth is that. It is, was there, was there probably some stirring to gossip and, and cruelty and those kinds of things? Well, we know that wherever there are people, there are problems. So probably there was some of that. But every indication throughout the book of Ruth is that the town of Bethlehem is stirred to mercy. They do not discard Naomi because she left in a time of famine and came back with a wavering testimony. They receive her. They encourage her. They build her up. They do not discard Ruth because she is a Moabite. Repeatedly, we see that there is a rejoicing in the town of Bethlehem over a saved sinner. They are stirred in mercy. They are stirred to rejoice in the mercy of the Lord. So that's a little bit looking ahead. So I hope we'll consider this more as we work through Ruth. Brothers and sisters, where do we live today? 
We live in a land where there's still so many who call upon the name of the Lord. But it's an ethical wasteland. Would we hear the call to be one of the faithful lights, one of the faithful havens, oases, where we would be stirred to mercy, rejoicing to receive the wavering, wandering ones, rejoicing to see the unbeliever from Moab giving a profession of faith. Would the Lord use us as a faithful Oasis, a faithful place of mercy, looking to the God who is merciful. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, we praise your providential work through through the means of weak and stumbling sin.